You're listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. My name is Jason Steinhauer. And my name is Paul Steggy. In this podcast miniseries, we'll be taking a look at key issues facing our world today and showing that to better understand them, we have to look back to 1968. A closer look at that iconic year can help us to think about these issues in new ways and perhaps get us one step closer to finding solutions. In this episode, income inequality. Today, income inequality and what to do about it have provoked a great debate among policymakers, media, and the public. Income inequality risen in every state since the 1970s. Income inequality is the issue of today. Income inequality in America, that is the subject of this evening's Talking Points memo. In Gallup polls, inequality is repeatedly cited by Americans as a significant problem facing the nation. This did not begin in 2011 with the Occupy movement, in 2008 with the Great Recession, or even during the stagflation of the 1970s. Income inequality was already an issue in the 1960s. How did it become a political issue? For that, we asked historian Marisa Chappelle. My name is Marisa Chappelle. I am an associate professor of history at Oregon State University. So there's this very famous story about Kennedy's aides reading Michael Harrington's book, The Other America, and sort of discovering poverty. You know, I don't know how much truth there is to that particular anecdote, but there is a way in which poverty, economic inequality are not high on the priority list of most politicians and policymakers in the early 1960s. On the whole, America had been growing wealthier in the 1960s and had been for more than 20 years. Personal income and personal savings both more than doubled between 1955 and 1967. But there was a massive gap between those benefiting from the economic boom and those being left behind. I think that the reason that poverty becomes a political issue is in large measure because of the Black Freedom Movement and because of other social movement activists who are making it a political issue. For in your time, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. That's President Lyndon Johnson speaking at the University of Michigan in 1964. Pressure from civil rights activists and intellectuals within policy circles led President Johnson to declare a war on poverty and to lay out a vision for a great society. The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. By the mid-60s, there are policymakers and politicians who are concerned about the problems of poverty and economic inequality coming from one side, and then there are activists who have always and long been concerned about that, but who are trying to make that a central issue, and they sort of come together. And then it, you know, this reaches, I think, a kind of a crisis point maybe by 1968, because you've had the Civil Rights Act, you've had the Voting Rights Act, and 
not much has changed in terms of economic disadvantage and economic inequality and high rates of poverty. And so there's an urgency. To bring attention to the issue, Martin Luther King Jr. organized a poor people's campaign in spring 1968. Despite King's assassination in April, thousands gathered on the mall in Washington in May and June to advocate for better income and housing. Among the proposals was an economic bill of rights that included a potential solution to income inequality, a universal basic income. In his later years, King increasingly focused on economic inequality and had begun to plan this poor people's campaign, wanted to pull the energy of the civil rights movement and broaden that out and bring low-income and people from across the country of all races to Washington, D.C., and a guaranteed income was, of course, one of the key demands of that poor people's campaign. Some of the nation's leading economists echoed this demand. In May 1968, the New York Times reported on its front page that more than 1,000 economists wrote to Congress endorsing a national system of income guarantees. Quote, the country will not have met its responsibility until everyone in the nation is assured an income no less than the officially recognized definition of poverty. You know, one source of that would be, um, interestingly enough, um, the conservative economist Milton Friedman. The idea was perhaps we can replace all of these various programs that we have with just a simplified negative income tax, right? So you... You put your paperwork in, if you make under a certain amount of money, you get a check back from the government. You also have those on the left who are advocating for it on on much different grounds. So there were many different strands that led into um, the, the kind of, from a perspective of today, I think, remarkable popularity, uh, at least among among policymakers and activists. The idea of a guaranteed income was never very popular among the population at large. In 1969, universal basic income was supported by the new President Richard Nixon's administration. A bill twice made it through the House of Representatives. It ultimately failed in the Senate. Some of the starkest scenes of inequality in 1968 could be found in America's cities. My name is Victoria Wolcott. I am professor and chair at the Department of History, University at Buffalo. American cities had been in decline for decades. The reasons were multifold. Lack of government investment in public housing, incentives for private development in the suburbs, and urban renewal, which bulldozed working-class communities nationwide. Cities were perceived as in decline much earlier than we kind of think about them as being quote-unquote in decline in, say, the 60s or 70s. So you have housing stock in cities, in um, particularly in, in central areas of cities that were from the late 19th or early 20th century, that uh, some percentage of that, that housing stock was dilapidated. So urban renewal was a way to kind of create that development while simultaneously, you know, excising this more dilapidated housing stock. White Americans were departing cities for the suburbs 
leaving communities of color to occupy decaying urban centers. The federal government had housing policies that incentivized white families to move out of the city into the suburbs and to buy single family homes. So there was a financial, a very powerful financial incentive to buy a single family home in the suburbs for working class and middle class uh, whites. Um, And those loans were not available to African Americans and some groups, other groups as well. And therefore you have actually an increase in racial segregation post-World War II. By the mid-1960s, a majority of Americans lived in cities. Yet cities exhibited pockets of extreme poverty, massive income inequality, and wide discrepancies in housing. It is harder and harder to live the good life in American cities today. The catalog of ills is long. There is the decay of the centers and the despoiling of the suburbs. There's not enough housing for our people or transportation for our traffic. Open land is vanishing and old landmarks are violated. Worst of all, expansion is eroding these precious and time-honored values of community with neighbors and communion with nature. The loss of these values breeds loneliness and boredom and indifference. And our society will never be great until our cities are great. Um, I think the the state of the American city was uh, one that was in decline, that you have a a, a process happening of the kind of devaluing of cities. There's a sort of association of the city with disorder. And I would say a kind of devaluing, in a sense, of public spaces as being places that were, again, perhaps dangerous, perhaps would involve racial mixing, and therefore the suburbs were a place of safety. A March 8, 1968 cover story in Life magazine was titled, The Cycle of Despair, The Negro and the City. It painted a particularly grim picture. The story described Norman Fontenelle Sr., a Harlem resident who had been laid off from his job. His youngest child was so hungry he ate plaster. Fontenelle's eight children split one apple per day. The apartment had no heat and was filled with roaches and rats. This was how Life magazine depicted America's cities in 1968. Conditions such as these contributed to civil unrest throughout the decade in places like Chicago, Newark, Los Angeles, and Detroit. In response, in 1967, President Johnson ordered a National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, known as the Kerner Commission. The report, released on February 29, 1968, warned that racism was causing America to move, quote, toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. It's being written by a group of you know, leading intellectuals, and what they found was incredibly high levels of police brutality, problems of unemployment, uh, and major problems with housing. And they reported you know, on this, these two nations that were essentially unequal nations uh, in American cities. The conditions in America's cities, the urban unrest, The report from the Kerner Commission and the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. helped push Congress to pass the Fair Housing Act of 1968. 
This is sort of the last piece of major civil rights legislation, and it's interesting that it happens so late. I mean, you have the Civil Rights Act in 64, voting rights in 65, and it takes until 1968 to pass the Fair Housing Act, which, you know, among other things, allows at least some possibility of African-American families to own their own homes and, and rent homes without racial steering. It's absolutely crucial for addressing these concerns. The Fair Housing Act for the first time banned racial discrimination in the sale or rental of permanent housing. It would not be for another six years that discrimination in mortgage lending would also be outlawed. So how does thinking about this history help us today? Well, for one, it should confirm that income inequality is not a new problem, nor is it a new political issue. Income inequality has been a challenge for at least the past 50 years, and many of the key factors driving it have yet to be fully addressed. It's a product of a complex network of problems. Housing, discrimination, lack of government investment, unfettered private development, education, employment, job outsourcing, automation. These trends were already in motion 50 years ago. A history of 1968 also illuminates one of the consequences of economic inequality, namely segregation along racial lines, along socioeconomic lines, and along geographic lines. Part of the context here is... That's Marisa Chappelle again. In this long post-war era, as many white Americans were able to achieve a new level of economic security and, and upward mobility, you have this period of time where people are becoming more segregated economically. And so as urban areas are being disinvested, right, um, uh, and suburban areas are becoming overdeveloped, this is why a lot of policymakers talked about kind of pockets of poverty, right? Because it seemed that poverty was sort of geographically concentrated. And I think a lot of that poverty did shock many Americans. Today, the idea of a universal basic income is again gaining some traction. Hawaii has become the first state to pass a bill authorizing its legislature to investigate a universal basic income for all its residents. And the city of Stockton, California, will be experimenting with a form of basic income, offering $500 to 100 of its poorest residents over the course of 18 months. Today, more than 80% of the U.S. population lives in cities. Yet American cities remain stubborn sites of inequality, a legacy of choices made 50, 60, and 70 years ago. I think the 50-year mark is, I mean, that's a significant amount of time. So it's, it's a really nice way to measure both the lack of progress and uh, as well as the progress. So I think, for example, thinking about cities, one of the things that one really sees is a revitalization of many cities that happens in the last 10 or 20 years. You can really see this sort of, you know, bottoming out of cities that happens in the 1970s, both fiscally and in other ways, as being perhaps an aberration uh, in the longer kind of history of American cities. The lack of progress, you know, income inequality is probably the best example, and the long-term impact of, of African-American families not being able to buy into the housing market because of discriminatory loan policies, etc., um, how that has had this cumulative effect all the way up until today. One final observation, it's clear from this history that the debate about income inequality emerged out of the civil rights movement. The two are interconnected. Economic equality is part of the fight for overall human equality. To detach arguments about income inequality from arguments about civil rights is in some ways to separate the question from its roots. 
Perhaps reframing the conversation as one about human dignity opens up new, more productive lines of dialogue. You've been listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. 1968 in Hindsight is produced by the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest at Villanova University. For more information on the sources used in this episode, please visit our website, lepage.villanova.edu. Special thanks to the LBJ Presidential Library for the audio of Lyndon Johnson's 1964 Great Society speech. Thanks for listening.